Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 Festival podcast, Adventurous Women, proudly presented by Kathmandu. We closed the festival with an inspiring event that brought together our theme of adventure and our celebration of 125 years of women's suffrage in New Zealand. Four extraordinary women told stories from their adventurous lives and talked about what drives them to take risks in their life and work. We heard from Holly Woodhouse, extreme sports star and editor of Say Yes to Adventure magazine, Lilia Tarua, who grew up in Gloria Vale and escaped as a teenager, Michelle Dickinson, aka Nano Girl, science communicator and adventurer, and Margaret Austin, Palmerston North Sunday school teacher turned Paris showgirl. It was hosted by broadcaster and author Miriama Kamor. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko te mea tua tahi ki tō tātou matua nui i te rangi, ko ia te tīmataka, ko ia anō te mutunga, ki a koutou e whakahui hui mai ki kūna i āhuatango te pōnei tēnā koutou katoa. A he mihi kauana ki a ngai tu āhuriri, ki oku nei whanaunga, e tū mai ki runga i te whenua nei o ōtou tahi. Ko auraki te maunga, ko waitaki te aua, ko ngaitahu te iwi, ko ngāti feke te hapu, ko Miriama Kamo tōku ingoa. E te iwi, tēnei te mihini nui ki a koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā ra koutou katoa. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Adventurous Women presented by Katmandu. I'm Miriama Kamo and I'm privileged to present this evening this wonderful lineup of incredible adventurous women. The theme of this festival has been adventurous. We have invited you to be adventurous in choosing the sessions that you've attended uh, and in those that you have given. We've been graced with a body of excellent, thought-provoking, boundary-pushing, joyful and revealing sessions this festival. And tonight our speakers are the embodiment of adventurous. Now, I always think it a rather unadventurous thing to begin with a dictionary definition, but uh, I couldn't help myself, especially when I came across this definition. Adventurous, adventure, escapade, risky or dangerous venture, a wild and exciting undertaking, brackets, not necessarily lawful. <laughs> so we're not gonna be unlawful tonight, but it does bring a little something extra to the timing of the word festival. September 2018 marks 125 years since the suffrage movement won women the vote in New Zealand. Uh, hard to believe that women have too often found themselves outside the law in the fight for the very basic right to vote. It seems in New Zealand inconceivable now that the battle was necessarily hard fought when in the decades since we've had three women prime ministers. Women who have carved their names into history, powerfully confirming the notion, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, watch me, I can do that with a baby. <laughs> Our country has been built by women pioneers, Maori women who braved the world's widest most dangerous and isolated stretch of water on Waka to settle and build lives here, to give birth here, to create pathways essentially for us all. And then all of our settler women who came here determined to inscribe on a harsh environment the prescription for all of those who have come here since to live and thrive. And it's fitting too that we acknowledge Christchurch, the city that resilience built and in the face of all adversity and challenge continues to build. And of course, it's the place too from which Kate Shepherd and the suffragettes fought ultimately 
leading the world in the women's right to vote. So we sit here together tonight because of the decisions of all of those women, the savvy, whim, courage, and resilience of our pioneers who raised generations of more adventurous women. And tonight we have made our own excellent decision all together to spend time with our four women adventurers. Like our forebears, these women have pursued excellence, beaten down doors and stereotypes, pushed boundaries and built pathways, and they do it with verve, finesse, fight, humor, and smarts. Like you, I can't wait to hear from them. Uh, please welcome our adventurous women, Margaret Austin, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, Holly Woodhouse, and Lilia Tarawa. So we're going to begin, ladies and gentlemen, with Holly Woodhouse. Now, Holly is an endurance athlete, adventurer, and designer. Uh, growing up in rural mid-Canterbury, her childhood was spent outside exploring the mountains and rivers on her doorstep. An outward-bound experience at 28 years old led her to competing in the iconic coast-to-coast -coast, uh, two-day and one-day events, running 250-kilometer-plus ultramarathons in the Sahara Desert and Amazon jungle. And her latest mission, crossing the Greenland ice cap. Passionate about the positive impact that adventure and sport can have on people's lives, Holly strongly believes in the power of do versus dream. Please welcome Holly Woodhouse. Sorry. Where's our cheeky person? Oh, there we go. Got it? Yeah. In May this year, I found myself at breaking point. I could feel the tears welling in the corner of my eyes, and every time I swallowed, it felt like I had a giant gobstopper in my throat. Constantly, I was battling this inner demon, telling me to stop, to give up. I thought of back to something my fellow inspiring explorer, <clears throat> Bridget, had said to me the day before. She said, don't let your inner bitch win. So I took a deep breath and I took a step forward and slowly I regained control of the situation. So how did an ordinary person, someone from mid-Canterbury, find themselves in one of the most harshest climates on the planet? the Greenland ice cap. I'm just like any of you, a rural Kiwi kid brought up on a sheep and beef farm southwest of Ashburton. With a brother and a sister, we spent our entire lives outside, riding our ponies up the mountain and on the rivers and the lakes and helping mum and dad on the farm. I went to boarding school and then after that, I headed to Wellington for a year longer than I should have and completed a design degree in landscape architecture. Jumping the ditch, I then went to Sydney and spent three fun-filled years by the beach, uh, King's Cross, partying, and of course, doing some work. Uh, 2009 rolled around in the financial crisis, and I, and I was made redundant. So I headed back to Ashburton, uh, where I was, got a job working at Latitude magazine as the graphic designer. Now, I, I love Ashburton, don't get me wrong, um, but I felt there was something missing. There was something that I just needed to go and do. So I was flicking through the paper one day, 
Uh, and I saw this little ad at the back calling for applications uh, through the Advanced Ashburton for an Outward Bound scholarship. I'd heard of Outward Bound before, uh, been something that people had done at school, um, and so I thought, you know what, why not? So I applied for it. Um, uh, I, so I applied for Outward Bound. Anyway, eight months, eight months later, uh, I was uh, outside my comfort zone with 12 other people that had come from all walks of life around New Zealand. We'd done a big day kayaking. We came back. Uh, we were told to pack our bags, and we were going on solo. An hour and a half on a ship, another hour and a half walking. It was completely black, and I was told to head over there. I had a tarp, a sleeping bag, uh, two Anzac biscuits, a carrot, and some raisins, and a piece of paper and a pen. And I was told I was to wait there, and I'd be picked up in two days' time. Uh, so fighting off possums and pigs and trying to get some sleep, uh, I wrote myself a letter, and I had no aha moment, no epiphany, it was just a whole lot of rambling words, uh, but I did write down four things that I wanted to do when I finished Outward Bound. Number one, start my own business. Number two, finally get to the UK and do the OE. Number three, do an event, e event each year that challenged me. And number four, get a tattoo. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I immediately came back from Outward Bound and signed up for something that, an event that had always been a massive dream of mine. I, I'd grown up watching it, it was on my doorstep, and it was the Coast to Coast. The Coast to Coast is a multi-sport event that involves kayaking, mountain running, and biking. And it goes from Kamara, uh, Kamara Beach on South Island's west coast it finishes here in Christchurch. At the time I did it, we finished in Sumner, uh, but now it's New Brighton. So I spent a year training uh, and completely immersed myself in this multi-sport world, and I absolutely loved it. I got to meet people that were 10 times crazier than I was, uh, and, and I taught myself to kayak. It's still, still a work in progress, definitely. Um, but as I, fin as I crossed the finish line, a year later, uh, having put in a lot of hard work, I not only surprised my support crew, but also surprised myself and managed to finish third in the two-day open woman. Uh, from there, I, two weeks later, I ticked off the next thing on my bucket list and headed to, you, to London to do the UK. Uh, while it was saying yes to that first thing, the Catman do uh, coast to coast then, uh, sort of was something that, that set, set it in motion. And what some people probably describe as, as crazy, to me it was just a real natural progression of saying yes to one thing and then saying next to the, yes, to the next thing, which ironically is my, was my business. I have now publish a magazine called Say Yes to Adventure, which is a combination of my love for design and adventures and the written word. Uh, while I was in London, I then signed up for the next thing, which was a marathon de Sable, uh, 260 kilometers through the Sahara Desert in Morocco. Uh, following that, we then signed up for a 230-kilometer ultra race through the Amazon jungle in Peru. And then coming back uh, to New Zealand, I was fortunate to be an ambassador for Kathmandu and then did the one-day coast to coast, uh, coming ninth in the open woman. Which leaves me to the next challenge. 
I was sitting listening to the radio one morning and heard, a, heard an interview by Nigel Watson from the Antarctic Heritage Trust about their third inspiring explorers expedition. They were calling for people to apply. Uh, and as the day wore on while I was sitting at work, I just knew it was something that I had to, I had to apply for. Uh, the reason why they were going to Greenland was because Fridtjof Nansen, who was the first explorer to cross, um, was celebrating 130 years since he'd done the crossing in 1888. So I was extremely fortunate uh, to, so of the 195 people, I was fortunate to make it to the first round of interviews of 12 of us and then to the next round, which was a shakedown weekend where we learned all about what it was, what it was going to be like. Uh, and then I finally got the phone call to say that I, along with three others, uh, had been selected to go on this expedition. Uh, so there was, it was Australia and Kiwis. So Bridget was, a, was Australian. Uh, there's another Kiwi called Wild Boy or Brando Yelovich, which some of you might know. Um, Bent Rotmo, who was our guide from Norway, Nigel Watson uh, from the Antarctic Heritage Trust, and Keith Parsons, who was based in Melbourne. So I had three months to train for this expedition. Uh, I had never done Nordic skiing before. I had no idea what I was in for. Luckily, I have quite a good fitness base from what I've been doing uh, previously. But for me, obviously, I'm not the tallest of people. And so strength was something that uh, really concerned me. So as you can see, I pulled tires down the rural roads of mid-Canterbury. I tried to avoid uh, most public, but at one stage, a German tourist did stop and take a photo of me. <laughs> but it was a great conversation starter. Um, so then the four of us, we headed uh, from Christchurch, I headed to Greenland. It was the most challenging thing I have ever done. Uh, pulling a sled behind me, 60 kgs, I naively thought Greenland would be flat. I knew, I knew it was white, but I didn't know it would be flat. And the ice cap is sort of broken into three parts. So you have getting onto the ice cap, the ice cap itself, and then getting off. It was very hilly. And in those first three and a half to four days, I, my body was just and aching the entire time, and I just thought, how, how am I going to get to the end? It, was, it became, like anything though, uh, the repetition, the removal of everyday life, no Wi-Fi, no, no anything else. It was just a matter of getting up in the morning, walking through the day, and then finishing. So we'd wake up, uh, we would then, it would take us about two hours to pack down our tent, uh, which involved boiling water, having breakfast, packing down the tent, getting ready to go. We would then walk for between 8 to 14 hours in the day. So we would walk in a line. One person would have the compass. We had turns on the front, uh, walk for between an hour and an hour and a half, stop, have a 10-minute break. In that 10-minute break was when you, well, you ate food. If you needed to go to the loo, you went to the loo, you sorted out your blisters, but that's all you had, and then we'd start walking again. Well, then uh, suddenly time would be up. We would stop and put up our tent, boil more water, have some dinner, and go to sleep. And so Groundhog Day for 29 days. 
we were lucky we had, uh, we had communication. So Bent, our guide, was in communication uh, with his guiding company who were based in Norway. So we knew what the weather was going to be like for that day. Uh, on this particular day, we got uh, in contact the morning and we were told that a hurricane was on its way. Uh, a bent, uh, a guide bent knew that this was a serious one, uh, and so we would have to stop. It was due to hit at 6 p.m. that evening, so we stopped at 12 p.m. and for the next six hours we set up our camp. We didn't have enough time uh, to dig a hole for the three tents that we had, so we only dug a hole for two tents, and the three of us um, split between those two tents. So for six hours, we had three shovels. So we switched between shoveling and putting the tents up. We dug our tents down as far as we could. And then we also, as you can see here, we started building ourselves a big wall uh, to protect ourselves from the wind. For the next 24 hours, we stayed inside our tents. We were not allowed out. It was a complete whiteout, and it was absolutely crazy. Thankfully, uh, our our wall was tall enough that we, it was just the, the prevailing winds that were hitting our tent, thank goodness, because it was absolutely crazy. Anyway, uh, at about six o'clock that evening, as soon as the, um, the hurricane had hit, it disappeared. And I said to Bridget, I was like, I have to go to the loo. I have to go to the loo. She was like, okay. So uh, we went and we actually went and hid around the side of, the, of this wall that we had made. And immediately, and then I went to sit down and flew, the loo paper flew out of my hand. And I was like, oh my goodness. And anyway, we both, um, we both as fast as we could, uh, went to the loo. Uh, and then I don't know how long it was, 10, 15, 20 seconds. That was enough time for both of us to get frostbite in our bottoms. <laughs> so I uh, have now added frostbite on my bottom during a hurricane to my resume. But it was quite, it was quite an, uh, an experience. We'd heard that in the middle of nowhere, there was the structure called Dai 2. Dai 2 was built uh, by the Americans uh, to spy on the Russians during the Cold War. And I mean, obviously, we were in complete, there was nothing. There was only horizon. For, so for three days leading up to this, we thought we could see it. We sort of had a game, the first one to spot it. Uh, and so for the three days leading up to it, we always thought we could see it. And then finally, on about day 14, um, popping out of the horizon was this incredible structure. Uh, built in the late 60s, it was then used uh, throughout until they pretty much just up sticks and out when technology got better in the late 80s. We, we were lucky enough to go inside, and it was freaky. It was so freaky. Uh, Everything was left as it was, and the only sort of difference was that obviously there were the ice and everything had sort of turned it into this mummified area. So that was pretty crazy to experience. We had we had weather that was unseasonable even uh, even for that time of the year. Our guide Bent had never been on an expedition where we'd had to stop uh, so often for the weather. This was about day 22. We'd been told when we started that the expedition would take us between 22 to 25 days. We had enough food uh, for 27 days. 
And so here we were, we were still probably another 100 kilometers from the end and we were at day 23 already. So morale was extremely low. We'd had white out for the three days before, snow, fresh snow, which was slowing us down dramatically. Uh, and we sort of had a team talk and, and we got inside the tent at lunchtime and we just said, what does everyone want to do? You know, do we call a helicopter? Uh, do we keep going? Um, or, and so as a group, we decided that we'd come on this adventure to finish it. That night, we woke up, uh, went to bed that night, woke up the next morning, and it was this beautiful bluebird day. And it was just something that shifted in us. And we started walking for about two hours. And then Brando, who doesn't really have an off button, uh, he, was, he was walking to the side of us. There was no way I was doing that. All my energy was going on following someone else's tracks. And he came across some other tracks. We knew that there was another group out there. They'd passed us on day four, a group of Brits. They were all SAS. They'd done Antarctica. They were, they were total extreme. Uh, we, and we came across their tracks. And very quickly, we decided that, no, that yes, it was OK to follow someone else's tracks. We were, it was not going to be by the uh, unworthy of. So we followed these tracks. Uh, and after a day and a half, uh, we caught up to this team who were completely broken. They had had a fallout uh, throughout the expedition. So there were six really strong uh, physical people that were totally mentally not in a great space. So they ended up following us, uh, following us for the rest of the trip. This, uh, this was the final day. A lot of people ask me what was the best part of the trip, and obviously the end was almost in sight. Um, but the fact that we'd been through so much, the weather had been had been so unkind to us, um, and we just kept pushing on. We knew the day before, we knew uh, on this morning we had a helicopter booked because the ship, the boat that we were supposed to take had literally sailed. Uh, we'd missed that already. So we got up that morning and we were, we had, um, we, we knew we had a long, a long day. We were going to the end to finish it. We were also just about to get off the ice cap. And we'd been told that this was the area, if we were going to see one, was to be a polar bear. So Brando, obviously, was on the lookout. And we were packing up our tents. And he, he was like, I can, see, I can see something in the distance. And so we all looked. And, and our guide, who has never seen one on his entire 12 years of taking people across Greenland, uh, we started to get nervous, and we were all like, you know, we've been told they're so dangerous, um, but there's just a little bit of you that really wants to see a polar bear. Uh, so we all got in a line, and Bent was in the front because he had the gun just to make sure, and, and we were walking along, sort of going, you know, excited, not that the fact we were almost about to finish, but, um, you know, the chance of seeing a polar bear, and we were walking along, and as it got closer, the polar bear wasn't moving. And by the time we got there, it was just a mountain of ice. <laughs> uh, but it was, that was absolutely fine, really. Uh, and so we started, we started moving. We knew the helicopter was booked. We had to get uh, to the end, and it would pick us up no matter where we were. Uh, so we walked right through, 
right through the day. And as we were walking along, uh, these incredible mountain ranges just popped out of the horizon. It was absolutely beautiful. We got, um, we got to about 1 a.m., and we knew that right on the coast for the last three days had been sea fog, which meant that the helicopter, if we went down there, wouldn't be able to pick us up. So at 1 a.m., after walking for 15, 16 hours, we sat in the tent and had our last hot meal and, and made a call. Do we stay where we were uh, and guaranteed to be picked up by a helicopter? Or did we just go for it and cross our fingers and hope that the sea fog would lift and we'd be able to get off? If we, didn't, if we couldn't get off that day, we would miss all our flights back, uh, back home. So it was a massive decision, especially for Nigel, who uh, had already had to charter another helicopter. Um, but as a team, we decided that we were just going to go for it and hope for it. So we went, we went for it and... We got to the end 22 hours later. Uh, we had to shift our, shift our uh, landing or our end, um, so we couldn't actually quite touch the water, but we were just a little bit higher, uh, so we had a better chance of the helicopter. And we finally got to the end, and the sea fog was coming and going, and then it finally lifted. And I got to the end, and I, I let a little tear escape, uh, and I just was so overwhelmed and so proud of the achievement of all of us had made and finally getting from one side of Greenland to the other. This is me flying back to civilization, and oh, the relief was huge. Uh, but uh, someone once told me, or I read this quote, um, life is only your remembered stories. And this, for me, has been by far my biggest story. And you'll find a little card that you were given, hopefully on the way in or on your seat. Um, and I, want, I would love everyone to write down on the back of that one thing that they would like to do when they leave here. Put it in your, put it in your wallet, put it on the fridge, uh, but just remember it. And all it does is just taking that first step uh, and, and great things will come. So I'll just leave you with a quote. Courage is not the absence of fear but rather the judgment that something is more important than fear. The brave may not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. And just one last thing, I never got the tattoo. <laughs> Thank you. Holly, are we allowed to know what the tattoo would be should you get it? Oh, now, Mum's in the room, so I can't say. <laughs> Fair enough. Mum's the word on that one. Um, I have to say, I think my favourite line from that was, and then it was time for the next challenge. <laughs> <laughs> really? You haven't had enough? Uh, but I tell you, I feel so much better about my renovation now. <laughs> you choose to live in tents. I thought I was doing a hardship living in an apartment. <laughs> well done. Thank you so much. Another round of applause for Hollywood House. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Lilia Tarawa is a best-selling writer and keynote speaker on how to love yourself and build healthy self-esteem. She was born into the infamous Gloria Vale cult, 
and broke free from the religious community at 18 years old. Her book, Daughter of Gloria Vale, tells that story. The talk Lilia gave at Christchurch TEDx in 20, 2017 has been viewed more than an incredible four million times. The writer's extraordinary life is her canvas to share inspiring human stories of courage and bravery. Lilia's professional work seeks to solve global mental health problems by teaching people to draw self-worth, self-confidence, and self-esteem from their individuality and personal power. Please welcome Lilia Tarawa. Thank you. Hello. Kia ora. Um, happy Father's Day to all of the fathers in the room. Um, and the, I like to dedicate my talks to somebody. So this one is for a very special father, my own, who taught me that being different is your greatest strength. And when I was preparing for this talk, I was like, I wrote a completely new talk. Um, how many of you in here have seen my TED Talk? Good, that's not very many, because I'm going to do a very similar talk. Um, and I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it touches you. Let's see if this works. So I grew up in a valley on the west coast of New Zealand's South Island. Imagine the wildest, most beautiful valley you've ever seen. Lush bush that merges from foothills into fertile farmland, cut through by pristine rivers that snake down from the Alps above, and a lake that sparkles like polished glass while rainbows write color in the sky. I grew up in the Gloria Vale Christian community. 500 men, women, and children living together and following the doctrines of Jesus Christ. My grandfather was my hero because he brought us to this land and founded the community I loved so much. Buying the two farms on either side of the river was a smart move for our group. We'd migrated from the East Coast and needed a livelihood. I arrived at six weeks old, strapped on my papa's back to what would be home for the first 18 years of my life. My cousins and childhood friends were like, brothers and sisters to me. We did everything together. Camping was one of our favorite pastimes. We snuggled in sleeping bags underneath the stars and cooked damper on campfire ashes. I want you to think for a moment of your happiest childhood memory. My favorite was celebration day. Imagine the coolest party you ever attended as a child. My cousins, my friends, and I would gorge ourselves on pink candy floss and drink way too much sugary soda. There were clowns on stilts and bag rides behind tractors, three-legged races, and a plane that flew over to drop lollies from the sky. And the men built us a hydro slide and a flying fox. And on these days, my granddad would decree a day of work for the entire community. So the men came in off the farm for the festival and the women stopped working in the kitchen. And it was all free. We didn't pay for it because we didn't earn wages. We didn't work for money. We worked for the lifestyle and for each other. The money that we made in our businesses was kept in a communal bank account. And that bank account built the hostels we lived in, 
put food on our backs, put food in our mouths, clothes on our backs. And I loved learning to sew, knit, spin, and cook. I loved working with the other girls in the women's realm. And music was one of my favorite hobbies. And we were taught music in the first year of school. So by the time I was 17, I was competent on five musical instruments. Think for a moment about a time you achieved something really important. Remember how it felt. Remember how proud you were in that moment. It probably felt similar to the day I received my first school report. It was the most important day of my life as a six-year-old. I'd scored excellent grades and even better personal comments from my teacher. So you can imagine my excitement when my grandfather took the report and read it to the 500 members of my community at dinner. And then he said, we don't want women like you. My stomach dropped and I turned bright red. There was air being sucked in my nostrils, but I couldn't breathe. So my teacher had written in my school report a line that read, Lilia demonstrates leadership qualities which could be useful for when she gets older. And my grandfather humiliated me for hours. This would become a common theme throughout my life. And as a young girl, I spent the majority of my time with women folk. And because we home birthed big families, the sight of a pregnant belly made me feel at home. My mum grew up with 15 brothers and sisters. I have nine siblings. I was seven years old when I saw a newborn baby for the first time. I took the scissors with both hands and snipped the umbilical cord. My cousin was born blue because the umbilical cord was strangling him. So after saving him, the midwife did a trauma assessment with me because I was 10 at the time. And I held my aunt's hand when her next girl was delivered on a mattress in the back of a van on the way to the nearest hospital. I couldn't wait to grow up, marry a man, and have his babies. My girl cousins and I talked about it a lot. So it was an exciting day for me when I turned 12 and got my period because I could finally fulfill my purpose in life. And by the time I was 14, I knew who I wanted to fulfill that purpose with. It would be a worthy marriage. I was the granddaughter of the church founder, and he was the son of Fervent, one of the church leaders. His name was Willing. And one day, we were sitting in class when Fervent bowled in the door, dragging Willing by the shoulder. Willing had been disobedient. I don't remember what he had done. It could have been that he combed his hair the wrong way, spoke back to his father, read a book he wasn't allowed to read, or wore sunglasses. It didn't matter. The punishment was the same. We were then ordered 
to watch. William was ordered to bend over and pull down his pants. And Fervin said, watch. And my stomach rolled when he pulled out the leather belt. He then beat Willing with it, and I refused to look. Instead, I stared at my desk, and I whispered, please, God, make this stop. Please make it stop. And in that moment, my respect for fervent leadership imploded because I knew what he was doing was wrong, and the leaders taught us so much about the love of God but as I watched a man beat his son, I knew that's not love. And it wasn't, even though after fervent, when he had finished beating Willing, hugged him and said, I love you, that's not love. So I became suspicious of the laws that we were being taught. Spear the rod, spoil the child, the leaders told us. My blood boiled. How can anyone call themselves a Christian and treat a child that way? How can any parent treat a child that way? What's wrong with the people running this place? I don't want children here. But not wanting children was forbidden. My best friend Grace was an unwanted child. Her mother gave her up at birth and her adoptive parents shipped her from the U.S. to our community in the hopes good Christian influence would set her straight. And she was a chocolate-skinned Mexican girl who arrived in Gloryville when she was 13, just three years older than me, and I loved that girl more than life. She giggled, and she made me feel safe. So we became best friends and did everything together. And Grace bought personal possessions from the outside world. These were forbidden and new to me. Music, jewelry, makeup. And seeing them for the first time made her all the more special in my eyes. Her rebellion inspired me. But over the years, Grace would be punished many times because she refused to be controlled. She was 20 when she came to me and told me the leaders had ordered her marriage to a man she didn't love. And she stood in front of me, trembling in fear, tears streaming down her cheeks. They were sending her away to India with him. So in this desperation, she packed her bags, hidden them under a tree, and begged a friend on the outside to come and rescue her. But she was discovered. So Grace was taken before an inquisition of 20 grown men seated in a room where for hours on end she was barraged, forced to confess she was evil, that she was a sinner, forced to phone her family on the outside and tell them she didn't want to leave anymore. And I thought, fuck them. No one tells my best friend what to do. So I threw my arms around her and I said, don't listen to them. You do what you believe is right. And thankfully, her adoptive parents came through. 
they phoned Gloryvale and they threatened to send in the police if Grace wasn't allowed to leave. The next day she was gone. And she now lives happily in Canada. And after this incident with Grace, I knew I needed to leave. Or the same thing would happen to me. And I knew I needed to take my little sisters too. And thanks to a few people, I had one foot out the door. When I was 13 years old, my eldest sibling ran away from Gloryvale. When I was 13, my next elder sibling ran away. My first sibling ran when I was 11. And when I was 17, my younger brother threatened to leave too. I didn't know it at the time, but my parents were ready to go as well. But they couldn't bear the thought of losing another child, so they were waiting for me to come around so we could be together as a family. And after what happened to Grace, I was ready to go. I left Gloria Vale with my entire family just under a year after Grace did. And after I left the cult, I became obsessed with learning everything I could about human behavior because I thought if I can understand myself and others better, then I can protect myself I can make sure no one ever takes advantage of me ever again. And as I wrote the story of my life in a religious cult, I realized the leaders of Gloryvale had used cruel tactics to control and manipulate me. They began by using shame to degrade me in front of my loved ones. It, it started that day when my grandfather publicly humiliated for my six-year-old report card. His actions sent a clear message of who's in charge. We all knew what would happen to anyone who dared question authority. But it didn't stop there. They began by using guilt to degrade my sense of self-worth. You see, every single day in Gloryvale, I was told I was a worthless sinner. It was my fault. I was the one to blame. And so when people treated me badly, I thought, maybe it is my fault. I deserve this. I was filled with so much self-doubt that I struggled to think or act for myself because I was always second-guessing. What if it is my fault? What if I am the one to blame? And they may have beaten me down, but they messed up when they mistreated the people I loved. My fury towards the injustices suffered by willing and grace gave me the strength that I hadn't been able to muster for myself. Love for others broke the chains that shackled me. But why was I willing to stand up for them and not for myself? So I asked, what does it mean to love myself? What does it mean to love myself so fully that if anyone ever tries chain me ever again, I am the first to stand up for myself? Sorry, I don't have all the answers. But I've come a long way. And I've come to realize that my six-year-old report card was bang on. And my grandfather was terrified of strong women. 
I am a strong woman. I am a leader. And today I know my leadership skills are priceless. I use them to lead Gloria Vale and forge my way in a world that honestly still scares the living hell out of me. I used them when I was 23 to run a company and to write a book that teaches others what's possible. And now, at 27 years old, I'm using them to stand here with you today. And I use them every single day to remind my six-year-old self that she can do anything she wants to do and to never let anyone tell her otherwise. Wow, absolutely powerful. Lilia, thank you so much for being you, and that despite all efforts to stop that from happening, you have come through and stood here today as you do so often with so many other groups of people to be completely, shamelessly, and utterly you. Thank you. Lilia Tarawa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Austin is our next speaker. Margaret was born in 1946 in Palmerston North. She escaped to Wellington and Victoria University at age 20 and failed her units uh, because she joined the drama club. She left New Zealand in 1975 on an OE, which lasted 13 years and spanned time in Amsterdam, Athens, Paris, and London. She began writing in 1980 scribbling angry poems in Athenian tavernas on white paper tablecloths under the influence of Retsina. <laughs> These writings turned into an autobiographical account, Dancing Naked, which was published by Random House in 1997. Dancing Naked recounts the author's mostly undressed working life in Amsterdam and Paris. Since her return, she has lived in Wellington, where she is a theatre reviewer, performance poet, and after-dinner speaker. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Austin. I have two confessions to make. I'm not Margaret Austin, the former Labour Member of Parliament for Christchurch. <laughs> I'm the other Margaret Austin. She and I met once, and I told her that occasionally I was taken for the former Labour MP, and, and she told me that she was occasionally taken for that woman who went to Amsterdam and did all that stuff in Amsterdam. <laughs> now, and we both laughed. My second confession, which you've already heard, is that um, I come from Palmerston North. <laughs> is there anyone out there tonight who's from Palmerston North? Please raise your hand. If you, I got to say, <laughs> anyone else? Hey, we escaped. <laughs> My escape took uh, 20 years to make. I didn't know of anything else except Palmerston North, as you don't until you leave. I had a typical 1950s upbringing. I need to give you a bit of personal context before my main story. That's why I need to tell you a little bit about Palmerston North, me and my, my parents. 1950s upbringing, which, which meant typical, which meant it was conservative, well-mannered, 
scandal-free, or at least if there were scandals, they were kept from me, by a very well-educated mother and father. More about those two in a minute. But the most salutary story that I have about Palmerston North is the railway line. Do you remember what happened to the railway line? The railway line in Palmerston North used to run through the centre of the city, yeah? which meant you know, arrivals, departures, emotion, excitement, bit of dirt, bit of grime, you know, bit of, bit of life. And what did the city fathers do? They moved the railway station outside the city, well outside the city, thus removing from it the only excitement it had. <laughs> Talking of transport, and this poem has a meaning for those of us who were in the fourth form. There was a fourth form once. It was for 13 and 14-year-olds. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I wrote this poem, and you, you'll know why. It's for the fourth formers and why it has relevance and why I'm, I'm reading it to you now. It's called The Front of the Bus. Have you noticed who sits at the front of the bus? Is it someone who disdains the rest of us? He or she all proud, though no fuss, do they ponder the past or try to suss the meaning of life? Oh, come on, that stuff sucks. Get a life. Come on down to the back of the bus. <laughs> my mother and father. Well, my mother was a front-of-the-bus person. <laughs> she was beautifully mannered, Spirited, but very, very proper. Ah, but you see, she married my father. And my father was a back-of-the-bus guy. <laughs> he was 14 years older than my mother, and a man who was mysterious to me throughout, really, which is partly why I so loved him. He was a reporter for the notorious newspaper Truth. And then a neighbour told me that my father used to frequent the opium dens in Haining Street, Wellington. Yes! <laughs> so, my mother, my father, and uh, here's the result. <laughs> Fast forward to... Ooh, no, I'm going to pop in one other anecdote about my husband, long since my, my ex-husband, who I met and fell in love with at Victoria University, it was a drama club, you know, all of that. When I told him after two years of marriage that I was a bit restless and I really couldn't spend the rest of my life in a cottage in Port Chalmers, which happened to overlook a graveyard, <laughs> he said, well, I'll let you go, but you'll only end up back in New Zealand, remarried in some New Zealand suburb. He shouldn't have said that. He's still in Port Chalmers. <laughs> Fast forward to 1980 and the streets of Paris. One particular street. Who's been to Paris, by the way? I'm sure I get a show of hands here, 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 here. Paris! Whoa! The particular street I was on was called the Rue du Faubourg Montmartre. It's actually not in Montmartre, strangely. It's in the 9th arrondissement, and I was there in the street that Henry Miller wrote about. Now, I don't actually like Henry Miller very much, and, well, that's another speech. 
He said the street was full of pimps and prostitutes. Well, I was too busy, intent on why I was in that neck of the woods to look out for pimps and prostitutes, I can tell you. Why was I there, and what was I doing on this street in Paris on a warm summer night? Paris, after Amsterdam, where I'd spent three years, was a very different vibe. And in Amsterdam, I'd had a wonderful time. I'd spent three years there, and I'd met, I'd had some, I'd taken some risks, yeah. And I'd met a charismatic black American jazz dancer who took me under his wing, showed me all the underworlds of the city, and taught me in a dance class that I had shoulders. And I had hips. In other words, he taught me my body, he taught me myself through dance. That was the gift of Amsterdam. Then there was a year in Athens, and now there was Paris. Now, I knew that cities give you messages if you're prepared to listen, if you go to the right place. And the right place this time was a, was a bar high on the Champs-Élysées. And I got into, into talk with the barman about why, why I was here, and was I looking for work, and what did I want to do? And I mentioned that I had some dance training, and he said to me, polishing glasses he was, he said to me, um, well, they're looking for girls at the Folie Bergère. Why don't you try there? <laughs> Folie Bergère, I thought. Ooh, wasn't that some kind of dance hall? Hmm? Right, gosh, a bit like the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, which it is like the Moulin Rouge, not the Moulin Rouge. Who's visited the Folie Bergère? Anyone? The Moulin Rouge? Yeah, okay. They're, you know, they're big Paris cabaret musicals. Josephine Baker, a dance there, Charlie Chaplin. Wow, I thought, oh, okay. Could be interesting. Yeah. I mean, never mind the recruitment agency. Ask the barman. <laughs> so the next night, I went along to try and find this theater. I just, now, I said Paris was, Paris was like a woman for me. Amsterdam was unisex. Athens was very much a man's world, and I had a salutary lesson about that just two weeks ago. I had been the victim of, this is not a Me Too story. Well, it is, actually. I haven't put it on Me Too. In short, there was, I was the victim of an attempted rape. It wasn't so much the rape that was a bother, really, or even the bruises on my throat. It was how the police treated me. At 2 a.m., I was in a police officer commented, telling him about this attack and near rape. It wasn't a rape, it was, an, it was an attempted one. And the cop looked at me, took a, f there was a vase of flowers on the table. He took out a dead one and handed it to me and said, only whores are on the streets of the city at night. He shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I, left I left Athens for, for, for that reason. There was no way I was gonna stay in a place like that, be that as it may. There I was then in Paris on the street, and I, I had made up my mind that I was, going to, I was going to get a job in this theater. It was 10 o'clock at night. I had no CV, no appointment. I didn't know anyone. After a couple of glasses of wine, <laughs> I found a side street near the theater, and I walked down it. It was a warm summer night, and there was this door was open. It was the stage door. Well, I don't know about you, but if there's a stage door open, <laughs> I go in. I didn't know it at the time. It was actually the interval, and all of the cast of the Folie Bergère, as it were, 
was, were, 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 having, were having a drink at the bar at, at interval. And they all looked very straight. I couldn't tell the men from the women because they wear heavy makeup, eyelashes, body makeup, and I couldn't tell who, who was male and who was female. But I barged up to the nearest one and said, I'm here. I said in French, I'm here to see the artistic director. That's what you say, you see. And, and, and the person sort of didn't bat a false eyelash at me. <laughs> he or she said, over there. So then I spoke to a receptionist, and she bat, didn't bat an eyelid either. She showed me into a, an office, empty, overflowing ashtrays, on the wall, big posters of topless dancers. I had just time to take that in before there was a deep old voice behind me which said, qu'est-ce que vous voulez, madame? And I turned around, and in the doorway was this elderly gent. This was Michel Guermati, a man who came from Hungary and little by little rose to be the artistic director of the most important music hall in Paris. He had a wonderful history, which I didn't know about. All I knew was that this man was old, scary, and he had something I wanted, a job. I said in bad French that I was a dancer, that I'd heard he was looking for girls, and, um, and I had a bit of dance training, and, and I had good legs, and then I, I, and then I paused. <laughs> I looked at the posters, and I, I, just, I, ha I just had to get in before he did. I had this Achilles heel, you see. I had a spot of vulnerability, ladies and gentlemen. It's this. <laughs> I had to say something before he did. So, in pidgin French, in pidgin French, I said, look, I'm, uh, I don't know if you know French, but I said, j'ai pas les seins. That means I haven't got breasts. <laughs> this guy looked at me, and he said, madame, est-ce que vous êtes une femme? <laughs> yes, I said, madame. Madame, vous n'êtes pas un homme. No, I said, it wasn't a man. <laughs> I didn't know what to say to the next thing, because then he said to me, Allô, madame, um, vous n'êtes pas, pas azard, un transvestite. <laughs> he had a lot of fun with me, didn't he? <laughs> then he said, well, madame, you are a woman. Then, then you must have breasts. You say you want to work in my theater, so we have to have a look at you. So undress yourself, madame. And he turned on his heel and left the office. He shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and the following is not a Me Too story. The following is not a Me Too story. Oh, he called my bluff. So he went out of the office. I took off my clothes, down to my knickers, put back on my high heels, and there he was back in the doorway. Eyed me, eyed me, and I could see, you know, Big lesson time. Nothing personal about this. He wasn't seeing me. He was seeing me in a whole row of women. You know, would I fit or wouldn't I? This was, a, this was, this was an audition, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and he put me through my paces. He told me to smile, put my hands on my hips, walk towards him, turn, make a turn. And then he delivered his verdict. He said, well, madame, I'm going to give you what you've come here for. I'm offering you a job in the chorus line of the Folie Bergère. And that's how an ex-Sunday school teacher all the way from Palmerston North.
I've nearly, I've nearly finished. This, this is the book which recounts that, Dancing Naked. It's out of print now, but you might find it in a, in a second-hand shop. <laughs> a couple of poetry books which are out there if they appeal to you. About risks. I just want to say a couple of things about taking risks. I have taken risks, and most of them have worked out well, you know? And they haven't even been calculated risks. Look, if you're going to take a risk, why take a calculated risk? <laughs> the whole thing about taking a risk is taking a risk, right? And, and, the, and the other thing is that people have said to me, if someone says to you, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, and finally, that if you, if you do take a risk, you know what? The universe is on your side. Talk about adventure, and I, you know, Margaret let us say that she was born in 1946. We're not going to actually do the maths, right? But I've got to say, if dancing naked gives me this body <laughs> at your age, I'm feeling dangerously inspired. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another round of applause, please, for Margaret Austin. Dr. Michelle Dickinson, ladies and gentlemen, is a nanotechnologist with a passion for making science accessible to all. After two decades working in the tech sector, she co-founded the social enterprise NanoGirl Labs uh, with a mission to empower, inspire, and educate through the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and maths. As a child, Michelle was naturally curious and realized that learning through play was a key part of her career path. Frustrated with the lack of diversity in the tech field, Michelle created the Kitchen Science Cookbook, a lovingly crafted book where every recipe is a science experiment using only the ingredients that you would find at home. For every book sold online, Nano Girl Labs gives a book to a school charity or family that normally would not have access. Michelle has received many awards for her outreach work, including winning the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize and the Sir Peter Blake Leadership Award. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Michelle Dickinson. Thank you, thank you. Isn't it amazing? I'm just standing here with these amazing women. Let's talk about adventure. Adventure is so much fun. And I did what every nerd does when I'm told to talk about adventure. I Googled it and I found a definition and it's quite boring. <laughs> and I could talk to you about being adventurous, because people say, well, Michelle, you're so adventurous. And they say it because they know that I am a competitive kite surfer, for example. This is me, this is my favorite space, hanging off a kite in a windy city, hoping I will land well. I have broken my kneecap twice. Not all landings are soft. Or, do you know what? It's not often that when I say, I run ultramarathons, that my ultras are shorter than other people's ultras. <laughs> I only run 100K at a time. But I love to run ultras. And here's what people say, well, how could you run 100K? And I'm like, here's the truth. Running anything more than across the street is far. 
anything further than 500 meters, you fight your brain and say, we're going to keep running. It doesn't matter if it's a 5K, a half marathon, a full marathon, or 100K or more. Your brain, after 500 meters, is like, and we're done. <laughs> and the rest of the marathon is telling your brain, no, we're still going to go. We'll keep going. One more step. Keep going. So I do love ultras. I snow kite as well as water kite. Um, which is, this is me up in the mountains in Queenstown. So basically, I never pay for a lift pass anymore. It's amazing. <laughs> so I kite up the mountain and I kite down. And people say, why did you move to New Zealand? And it's because of this. I literally took a map of the world. I've been here 10 years now. And I said, I want to live somewhere where I can water kite within 30 minutes of my house in any wind direction, and I can snow kite in the winter. And you know what? There's only like three places in the world. <laughs> but New Zealand is one of them, so thank you for your amazing landscape. It is one of the reasons why I came here. I love to adventure travel. I love to go to exotic places that people say, oh, you shouldn't go there. Don't be a woman there. This is me traveling around Iran, and the, the thing I loved about Iran is Look, I'm a staunch feminist, and I am okay saying that. And I wanted to go a to a place that I didn't understand, a place where I understood women were treated differently to how I was brought up in a Western civilization. And I learned so much in Iran. And I think the eye-opening thing, because I went all cross, right? I was like, nah, no man's going to tell me what I can and can't do. This is not going to happen. And then I had to work in this, um, in this nanotechnology government facility, and women who aren't married are not allowed to eat with the men. And I was the only woman there. And so I had to eat my lunch by myself every day while all the men hung out. And I was like, ah, grumpy, 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 grumpy. And then on one of the nights, they hosted me to have this amazing banquet. So I'm having this banquet. And I'm sitting with the wives and the husbands and chat, chat, chat. And then they said, and now the food is served. And all the men stood up and got the best things on their plates. And I'm like, crabby, crabby, crabby. And they brought their plate of food and they gave it to their wives. I know. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, do your men not bring you the best of everything? And I was like, tell me more. And they said, it is our culture. We as women, we are protected and loved by our men. They are our protectors. And so, of course, the best thing in the banquet will be for us. And then they will go and take seconds for themselves. And it really opened my eyes to something that I thought I knew when I was going in and I was all crabby. And I was like, never in my life has my husband brought me my food first. <laughs> and so it taught me that being part of a different culture is really good. And it was an adventure of sorts. And I like to rock climb and things. And I, do you know what? Don't tell anybody, but I was a competitive martial artist for 10 years. I don't tell people here because I teach students and they want to Google my fights and it's not good. But what people don't know about me is I was a cage fighter for money for a period of time. Because <laughs> in the US, you can make good money as a female cage fighter. And then I moved to New Zealand, and, and I taught students. And I realized that they literally went all to YouTube and realized that I had a bunch of fights online. So I had to pull a bunch of stuff offline. But anyway, look, I'm not here to talk about those things. <laughs> They're just part of who I am. And all of the sports I'm talking about are physics and maths. Jiu-Jitsu, one of my favorite martial arts, is all about how you use your opponent's weight against themselves. I can fight a 200-kilo man and still win. 
because I use his momentum against him. Kite surfing is all about working out the trajectory of where the wind is going and doing your trigonometry calculation in your brain and figuring out what angle you should be at to carve against the wind. Rock climbing is all about figuring out the angles and your climb and you look at it before you even touch the wall. I'm an engineer. I love science. All of these things are just part of what I love to do. Now, the next thing is kind of crazy, and I do live this too. I love swimming with sharks <laughs> for no other reason than pure craziness. So this is Fiji. If you've never swum with sharks, go to Fiji. It's nuts. It's crazy. And it gives you a sense of feeling alive. An adventure. <laughs> well, OK, I should, I should preface this. Hold on. I'm going to explain what's happening in this photo. The reason why I'm feeling alive is because we are hand feeding these sharks tuna heads. So if you look here, this is a tuna head, and this is a man's hand. And the reason why I'm okay being this close taking a photo of a shark is because I know they're being fed. They're not hungry sharks. Obviously, I won't swim with hungry sharks. <laughs> but sharks that we are feeding, I'm quite happy. It's, yeah, it's a different story. Anyway, so there's a, anyway. But what is adventure? Adventure is where the magic happens. And your magic happens outside of your comfort zone. That's it. It could be running. It could be finding yourself. It could be dancing with your boobs out. Whatever it is. <laughs> But my true adventure in life, the thing that has scared me, the thing that has challenged me, is the fact that I'm a woman engineer. And it's probably been some of the hardest things I've had to do in my life have been while I've been a woman engineer, because it's lonely. It's a really lonely place. And it's lonely because in New Zealand, 11% of our engineers are female. It's lonely because often I'm the only woman in the room. And it's lonely because people have a mentality around what an engineer is, what they look like, and how they should behave. And it's typically not like this. And I feel like I'm a sneaky engineer because I shouldn't be here. And the reason why I shouldn't be here is because I came from amazing parents. This is my mom and my dad, and I am like one in this photo, sticking my tongue out as usual. Um, my mom dropped out of school when she was 14. She was illiterate, and she just was fed up with feeling stupid because she couldn't read. My dad dropped out of school when he was 15, and he joined the military on his 16th birthday. So I have two very uneducated but loving parents. And my dad joined the military, and he got posted to a place called Hong Kong. And it was all foreign, and it was exciting. And when he was 17, he landed in this foreign land, and he did what every 17-year-old man does in a foreign land, and he went straight to the pub. And he got very drunk. And he met my mom, who was working in the pub. She got very drunk. <laughs> anyway, voila. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> so my parents had known each other for approximately two hours before <laughs> I was conceived. They did not know the same language. It didn't seem to matter. And I am the child of two parents who have no high school education who are 17. The odds are, the writing's on the wall, that I'm going to be the same. The odds are that I'm not going to go to university and that I'm going to grow up poor like we grew up poor. Those were the odds. And that is a story that happens around New Zealand. Children who grow up in poverty tend to stay in poverty. And only we can help them break that cycle. And I believe that education is a way we can break that cycle. But education, maybe not in the traditional way of going to school and going to university. So you know when you go to the careers advisor at school? Like, you're like 15, they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, ooh, what are my options? <laughs> and 
And they're like, you can be anything, they say. They don't mean it, but they say it. <laughs> and I said, great, I want to build a spaceship. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> like a real job. And I said, well, what are my choices? She's like, actually, your choice is nursing. And I said, why? She's like, because I've got the pamphlet here. <laughs> I said, oh, I said, um, I said, but I don't like people. <laughs> she said, that doesn't matter. Plenty of nurses don't like people. You'll be fine. Here's your pamphlet. <laughs> and what I've thought about is careers advisors are really unique, right? Because they're probably the only people who offer advice on careers who have never had a career. <laughs> so anyway, there I am wanting to be somebody who builds spaceships and being told that I should be a nurse. So I applied to nursing college, um, as you do, because you're told what to do at school. And secretly, my dad had decided that he was going to go back to school. Like, not having high school education, he decided he was going to be brave and go back to school. So he went back to school, and he studied for a diploma in electrical engineering. And he came home one day with a soldering iron and a circuit board. And I was like, yes. I was like, Dad, I need one of those. And so he gave me one. And I did what every kid does with a soldering iron. I ran around the house and I melted everything. <laughs> and then I got grounded. <laughs> and he said, what are you going to do with this skill, this soldering skill? Because I sat next to him every night as he was doing his homework and I learned his stuff. And I said, I'm going to build a spaceship. And here's the difference. He said, OK. And there is something really powerful about parents not closing the doors on their kids. Because why not let your kids dream big? What's the worst that can happen? Your child has this huge ambition, and they strive for it. Well, even if they don't make it, but they get close, they're that much further ahead of where they should be. And I see it all the time. I teach robotics around New Zealand, and I try to make it as gender neutral as robotics can be. Right? We've got pink Lego and stuff, and female Lego, or whatever. And, and I had this little girl. I was in Wellington. I had this little girl pop up, and she's like, Mom, Mom, I want to do this. Can I do this? And her mom looked, and she's like, oh, no, that's not for girls. And she pulled this little girl away. And my head spun around like the exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran after this woman and her child. And I literally just dragged her child off her, and she came. <laughs> and she did robotics with me, and she was amazing. <laughs> but I hear this all the time. Parents not realizing that they're closing a door because of their fears, because of their stereotypes. Not letting their kids do things. So anyway, here I am, soldering away. And I was pretty good at it. But nobody had said to me, stuff you learn outside of school is counts as smarts. I was only told that stuff I learned in school was smarts. And um, I failed high school. <laughs> Not great, I know. Weird, hey, because now I have a PhD. It's so weird. But um, <laughs> at the time, I'm 17, and I get my grades, and they're like, uh, you failed because you suck. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true, because I'm not academic. Like, obviously, I'm an academic at university, but I'm not academic in my brain. My brain's not good with tests. My brain's not good at exams. My brain is not good at pressure. But when I had a soldering iron at home, I built stuff. I fixed stuff. I took apart toasters. I built robots as a hobby. But nobody had said, that thing is useful. They said, well, you failed chemistry. You're not very smart. And you're not getting into nursing, which is a godsend. I wish I knew that. <laughs> this is why I wasn't a nurse. Being labeled a failure as a kid scars you for life. I wasn't a failure. I just wasn't good at tests. But nobody differentiated those things for me. Nobody said, tests are not your thing, but you're great with your hands. You're what they call a kinesthetic learner. You learn with your hands. You learn by seeing. Nobody said that to me. Everybody said, oh, she's a failure. But that's OK, because her mum and dad are. So we sort of predicted that's where you were going to go. And yet. 
some things happened in my life. And the main thing that happened was hard work and persistence. But I ended up sneaking into university a couple of years later um, and finding my passion. I studied fracture mechanics engineering. That is the engineering of breaking shit and never having to put it back together. <laughs> <clears throat> and it was my space. And everything we did was hands-on. And it was where I was supposed to be. And I went back to my careers advisor and I said, why didn't you tell me to be an engineer? And she's like, oh no, you're a girl. I would never have suggested, the boys totally were told to do it. She never said that to me. And she had never seen that as a career for me. So I had never had somebody to advise me to find my thing. But I found my thing and I was very lucky and I've been able to work for some incredible organizations. I live in Silicon Valley and work for Apple. And I don't know if you want to know, but secretly, you, how many of you have an iPhone? Hands up. Okay, now creepily, on the top of your iPhone, you may be like, oh, you're touching glass when you're pressing it, okay? You're not. Secretly, you're touching my secret coding. So, first ever iPhones came out, and um, I was working for them in 2005. And men, I'm sorry, men, but you in your pockets, you would put your phones in your pockets with your keys. And anybody who's ever cut a piece of glass before knows that scoring things scratches them. So iPhones lasted a day before they were scratched by keys. And so I came in, and I got to work on this project where we created a nanotechnology coating. So on top of your iPhone screen, you didn't know this, but you do know, is a six nanometer secret coating that we put on the top of it. And it's basically like diamond. It's an artificial diamond that sits on top of the glass. So you're not touching the screen. You're touching something that is 100,000 times smaller than the width of your hair. And it means that you can, if you want, take your key and scratch it against your phone. It'll be totally fine. Now, Samsung people, I cannot help you. Do not blame me if it doesn't work for you. <laughs> I only did work for Apple. And in doing this, people said, you're so passionate. You love what you do. I'm like, I found my dream. Like, this is my thing. And then somebody said, hey, this job is going for a nanotechnologist. You should go for it. And I'm like, are you sure? I don't think I'm qualified enough. They're like, yeah, but you're enthusiastic enough. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I Googled the person who was looking for the job, and I realized that he was dyslexic. And you know what's really important is knowing people's story before you meet them. Like every one of us carries a story, and we all have our reason for being here and the things we've had to go through. And I realized he was dyslexic, and I said, oh, do you know what dyslexic people don't want? is some smart ass coming in with a bunch of like long words and big documents to talk about how smart they are. So I went to this interview with four ping pong balls. <laughs> that was an adventure. More of, a, more of an adventure was me sitting in this interview room with nine men and me, and all the men are in suits, and they've got their big stacks of paper and their smartness and their many degrees from big places. And I had four ping, ping pong balls. <laughs> and I walked into this man's room and I, he said, tell me what's wrong. And I said, well, pretend these ping pong balls are atoms, your atom's in the wrong place. Your ping pong ball is over here. That's it. And he said, okay, thank you, we leave. And I was like, oh, two-minute interviews. Never good. Never a good sign. And I walked out to all these stuffy men with their, like, suits and stuff and their paper. And I was like, oh, I probably should have brought some stuffy suits and paper. But I'm very good at being me. And so I, I left, and the next day he called. And he's like, you have the job. And I was like, are you sure? It's like two minutes. He's like, I needed two minutes to figure out who you were and the fact that you didn't make me feel dumber like everybody else did. You were able to explain easily with four ping pong balls exactly what I needed to know to the point where I felt smarter. And I felt like I can trust you to make decisions. And so you got the job. And I was like, cool. His name happened to be Sir Richard Branson. <laughs> and he happened to have the job on his island, which is called Necker Island in the British Virgin Islands. And that was lovely. <laughs> And it made me realize that being brave and bringing my true self and realizing people's stories are so important is how I've had some incredible experiences in my life. 
an incredible experience is that, um, look, I don't talk about it much, but um, the reason why I failed high school is because my dad was sent to both golf wards. So he left when I was 11, and he didn't come back till I was 18. He did first and second golf war. And in that time, my mom struggled with being a military wife, so she turned to drugs and alcohol. So I didn't have parents growing up, really, and I got into trouble. I, you know, hot-wired cars and stuff. Used my engineering skills for bad. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it was the neighborhood. And that's fine, and it is what it is. And my dad ended up passing away due to some challenges from, from the war. And what I never got to tell him is I got to work for SpaceX. And so suddenly I'm 28 and working on spaceships. And my dad, who when I was eight, gave me a soldering iron, and I said, I'm going to build a spaceship one day. And he said, yeah. I didn't get to say to him, hey, Dad, I did it. And so as it's Father's Day today, I just want to say, hey, Dad, I did it. But what is the challenge? The challenge is I look at Google. This is a Google image search of an engineer. <laughs> and you will see that Google is quite clear that engineers are white men with hard hats. And the only time we are not a white man with a hard hat is up in this corner here. This is Prometheus, who is an alien. <laughs> it seems that you are more likely to be an alien and an engineer than a woman and an engineer. <laughs> and so I wanted to be bold, and I wanted to create safe workplaces. So I stand, started to have a voice, and I started standing up for things. I taught engineering at the University of Auckland, and I had hundreds of female engineers who I was sending out into the workplace, and it wasn't safe. And so I had to, they're like my babies. I've spent four years training these amazing people. I want them to go to safe workplaces. So I stood my ground. There was this one company in Auckland, and they, they were a steel company, and their van was like this push-up bra boob. And I'm like, it's steel. You don't need boobs for steel. Like, why are you doing that? So I went to their organization, and inside their organization, there were literally like 20 meter high pictures of boobs, like calendar girls all on the walls. And I was like, I do not want my girls to go here. So I went to talk to this man who was very unpleasant. Um, sadly, the newspaper caught it and it looked like I'm yelling at him. I'm not, I'm just trying to be like, we need a safe workplace for our girls to work. One of the things they do when you work at this company is they used to tie you as an initiation, first day on the company, they used to tie you outside with cling film and leave you there for a day and pour oil on you, canola oil, and then take a photo for their Facebook page. And I had all this Facebook evidence that their employees, like day one, is being stuck to a pole to have oil on. And if you do, welcome in. And I'm like, this is not a safe place for our kids, our amazing trained engineers to work. The challenge with this is I, I confronted this man. And I said, I think you should build a better, safer workplace for our, for our engineers. And he basically told me to go to hell. <laughs> and this hit the media. And he and many other male engineers who believe in the tradition of engineering being a blokey pace and having boobs out on a calendar in your workplace is totally fine, um, built a website. And the website was, how many ways should Michelle die? And there are many. They're quite creative. And so all these people from around New Zealand are like, this is why women shouldn't be engineers. Women like Michelle who stand up are the reason why we shouldn't let them in. This is how I want her to die. And after I cried a little bit, it was... Like, wow, I never thought about dying in that way before. Because <laughs> you have to, right? You have to have thick skin. When you have a profile, people will say whatever they want. And this is a big New Zealand problem, I believe, because this is a company in Taupo. Now, Taupo, <laughs> if you can't read it, it's a used forklift company. They're an engineering firm. And on the back of their, their trucks, 
they have a scantily clad woman, and it says, this is what sells their used forklifts, you know you're not the first, but does it really matter? And you're like, wow, that's pretty sexist. Hey. And then only recently, this year, Palmerston, Palmerston North again, it's you guys. Palmerston North, have you seen this company, Palmerston North? This <laughs> is an engineering company in Palmerston North who have a company motto, which is your whole is our goal. And a lady bending over. And they said it wasn't sexist. The lady was just coincidental, they said. <laughs> so what do we do when we're trying to create a safe place for our girls to grow up, when we want diversity to increase, and yet you know you're sending them to places like this? What do we do? We stand up. So when I worked in Silicon Valley, I'd always be the only woman in the room, and they'd often say, are you here to take notes? Are you here for the minutes? Are you here to make tea? And do you know why? Because the nerdy boys came in with their Star Wars t-shirts. And we don't have Star Wars t-shirts for girls. I don't want to wear the boys' one. So I was like, fine, I'm going to make my own clothes. I'm not very good at making clothes. <laughs> but I did make robot dresses. <laughs> and they were awesome. And I may have also made a spaceship dress. But what changed is I walked in with my spaceship dress, and they're like, oh, are you here to run the meeting? I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> spaceship dress. It was a tiny change, a tiny change to create clothing for females so that they could fit into the Silicon Valley stereotype, and it was fun. And then I went around New Zealand, and I asked a 1,000 kids in New Zealand to draw me a picture of an engineer. So these are kids aged between five and eight, and 100% of the kids drew me a picture of a man. I know. But we teach them that. We do. They didn't learn that from anybody else other than us and our stereotype. So I quit my safe job, and this is a real adventure, and I stopped being an academic, and now I run a social enterprise that drives around the country providing positive female role models to our children. And all we do is we take female engineers into schools and we say, I'm an engineer and this is what I do. We don't say you should be, we don't say anything else, we just say this is my job and this is who I am. And we ran the survey again, and suddenly girls started drawing pictures of girls when we said, what does an engineer look like? Suddenly they saw themselves in the room. Suddenly they thought that they could too. And so all you have to do, because every single one of you in this room is a, a role model, every single one of you has the chance to interact with a young person, is just say, this is what I do. Because you never know, you might be the person who opens their horizon, who helps them to dream bigger than they could ever have dreamed before. Now, I believe in taking risks. And I am a nerd, so I'm going to calculate my risks, because I like calculations. <laughs> but I believe that you should take risks. And we don't do it enough in New Zealand. We're so afraid of failure. But if you take a risk and you win, yay, happy. But if you take a risk and you lose, you're wiser. And actually, success is a terrible teacher. We learn from our mistakes. We don't learn from the easy way. We always learn from the hard way. So take risks. Oh, yeah, I like to, sorry. I like to strap fire extinguishers to my back and attach it to a skateboard. <laughs> sorry, I look at that picture as if it's totally normal. It's not common, hey, no, sorry. That is me firing the fire extinguisher and, and on a skateboard. But I want to leave you with this little thing. It's so easy to walk past things and be like, oh, that's a shame, and to not stop and be like, I wonder if I could help change that. And there are so many reasons why we need a diverse 
a diverse set of young people in New Zealand who believe that they can. I want our kids to be creators, not just consumers of technology. But the only way we can do that is if we let them dream about what they want to create and we empower them to believe that they are creators. And it's a big thing to change stereotypes. It's a big thing. And each one of us can do our tiny thing and feel like we're not getting very far. But all you need to do is look around the room and realize that everybody's tiniest of things has created this amazing movement that actually shifts New Zealand into a brand new place. Thank you. Cage fighting. <laughs> you know when you meet someone that you really admire and you're fangirling over and you're thinking, I'm going to make her my friend. How, what have we got in common? <laughs> swimming with sharks. <laughs> no, no, I'm so glad that swimming with sharks makes you feel alive because it, just the thought of it makes me feel very not alive. <laughs> Science and technology, no. Kite surfing, no. Rock climbing, no. But you know what? I'm so flippin' desperate. We both got brown hair and we both got brown eyes. Coffee <laughs> next week. <laughs> Dr. Michelle Dickinson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a wonderful evening with our adventurous women. Uh, Hollywood House, Lilia Tarawa, Michelle Dickinson, and Margaret Austin. Thank you, Kathmandu, for making this evening possible. In a moment, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to invite Rachel King, the program director of the festival, to come back onto the stage. But just very quickly, a reminder, you can buy our women's books from the UBS stand in the foyer, and they'll be there to sign them as well. Thank you again, adventurous women. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you too to all the adventurous women and the men here tonight. Happy Father's Day. Nga mihi nunui e te So, please welcome now the Programme Director of the Word Festival to close this event and the entire festival. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, Rachel King. Um, thank you so much. Mariama told me she was going to bring me up on stage and I thought, I have no idea what I'm going to say. Um, you've heard from me a lot this festival. Um, Every festival director wants to have a closing event end on a standing ovation. So thank you to our incredible women tonight. Um, you've fulfilled that, that, that dream perfectly. Um, we've had five days of events, 94 events, I believe, over the last few days. Um, we're, we're exhausted, but we're so happy and so proud. And thank you to all of you for coming out. 
Um, I want to just say a very special thank you to our incredible team. Um, there's an awful lot of them that have been helping out over the festival, so I can't name everybody. But I particularly want to acknowledge um, my fellow director, the executive director, Marianne Hargreaves. I'm not sure if she's here at the moment. Marianne, are you here? No. So Marianne works away behind the scenes. I'm obviously the person that gets up and you see my face everywhere, um, and I decide what happens in the program. Marianne makes it happen. So I'm so grateful to her um, and our fantastic partnership that we've been working together for the last five years. Um, I also want to thank the incredible Magda Lorenzo, who's down here. Magda, stand up, please. Uh, Magda came on board with us um, late last year as a, as a volunteer, and um, she soon made herself absolutely indispensable to the organisation. So, uh, Magda, thank you so much for all your hard work um, keeping us in line. Um, our production manager, Kat, is probably possibly not here. She might be backstage. Um, she's got such an incredible attention to detail, and she found it quite hard to pin me down to find, get what was in my head onto a page so that it could be... Um, translated to, to all the production staff, so thank you, Kat. Um, Fiona Brooker, amazing Fiona, stepped in at the last minute when our Art of Liaison person, Annie, um, pulled out because of illness. So, Fiona, if you're here, I'm not sure if you are, thank you so much. Um, Steph, um, Shannon, I'm going to forget, Magda, have I forgotten anybody? <laughs> what happens when you don't write things down and read them out like I usually do? Um, Anyway, I just want to say thank you all so much for coming out and we've got another festival in two years' time. But in the meantime, we've got lots of really amazing events lined up for you. We're going to be announcing a very special one this coming Thursday, in fact, um, because we just decided that we hadn't worked quite enough and, um, <laughs> um, and needed to keep going. So um, I just want to say a really big thank you to all our um, supporters, patrons, sponsors, funders, audience members, most especially I want to thank the writers because we wouldn't have this festival without them. So can you please join me in thanking these writers, but all the writers from who 150 of them, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so we started the festival with an adventurous woman and we've closed it with some adventurous women and on that note, I'm just going to say thank you all for coming and we'll see you again very soon in the future. Thank you. Thank you.